come to me, be sent out with authority to preach, even if you get rejected, even if there's opposition. Doesn't that sound familiar? I mean, that is our same commission today, isn't it? Even if we, we only look at the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus is just before he ascends back to the Father, he leaves his apostles with a final mission, and you notice some of the same words appearing in this commission that we hold to so dearly. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We see the same elements in our ministry here today as well. So you and I are commissioned. We're summoned to Christ, called to a relationship with him. We are given the authority of spirit-indwelt new creations in Christ, and we are sent out into the world to proclaim the gospel of grace, the gospel of God, the coming of the kingdom of God. Very similar. We're called, commissioned, we're summoned, given authority, sent out to preach. And we're supposed to do that even in the face of possible, potential, and inevitable opposition. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Let's add another phrase to our statement that we began with this morning. So the disciples commissioned from Jesus, that which attracts opposition from the world. We've seen this already in Mark's gospel as we've walked through it over the last couple of months, and, and it's been hinted at already here in this passage in verse 11. And the truth is that we can expect opposition. We can expect opposition. I want to say something about the structure of this passage we're looking at just briefly. We've mentioned before that oftentimes Mark will use a literary technique that he he sandwiches stories. So he'll start a story, he'll interject a seemingly unrelated story, and then come back and finish that first story. And we see that here where in verse 7 he begins with this story of the disciples being sent out. But then all of a sudden in verse 14 there's this interjection of the recounting of John the Baptist's death. But then we come down to verse 30 And he returns to the initial story of the apostles. And we know that because he uses that word. This is the only time in Mark's gospel that he uses the word apostles. What does apostle mean, literally? The sent ones. The sent ones. And so this is Mark signaling back up to the first part of the story. Okay, he's signaling back up to where the disciples were sent out. Then there's this interjection of of Herod and, and John the Baptist. Now he's returning at the end. So we have to ask, okay, why this interjection? You know, why is he, he bringing up Herod here? Well, I think Mark includes the recounting of John the Baptist's execution as an extreme example of the opposition that faithful disciples will encounter while they go into the world. An extreme example, no doubt. We are not at risk of being beheaded, but John the Baptist was. What we're really being shown here, though, under the surface is not necessarily the opposition, but what it, we're be sh- being shown here is that... Um, When two kings and the kingdoms they represent collide, there's always going to be upheaval and tension and conflict. And in Mark chapter 6, we see two kings and their kingdoms colliding. We see Jesus Christ, the king of kings, and his eternal kingdom. He's a kingdom of, of holiness and justice and love. We see it butting up against the temporal kingdoms of this world represented by King Herod. The kingdoms of this world characterized by death and insecurity and selfishness and pride. And we see them coming up against one another and there can be nothing but upheaval. There can be nothing but opposition and kickback. 
And here we have John the Baptist representing a faithful disciple who stood in the court of the, of, of the king of this earth as a representative of the king of kings. And he said to that king, he said, listen, the kingdom I represent will not stand for this. The kingdom I represent, the, the precepts and the priorities of this kingdom will not stand for this sexual misconduct. And we saw that in verses 17 and 18, where John is standing up and saying, this won't do, Herod. I represent a higher court. I represent a different king, a different kingdom that is yet to come. And because of that, there is opposition. There is tension. Anytime we stand for the king of kings and say to the world, in this kingdom, this is not how it will be, there will be tension. And for John, it cost him his life. It's an extreme example of the opposition that we can expect from the world. A faithful disciple will attract opposition from the world. We know that. And we, as we share in the commission of the disciples, we have that same assignment, and we go into the world that has a different kingdom than the one we represent, we can expect pushback. We can expect rejection. We can expect opposition. Jesus was clear. If if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And they persecuted him. And Paul wrote to Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you desire to faithfully represent the king of kings and his coming kingdom, the kingdoms of this world will say, uh-uh-uh-uh, you're not, you're not encroaching on our territory. It's a fight. And while, praise the Lord, we are not living in a context in 21st century North America where our lives are literally at risk, something that we especially remember today. To be a faithful disciple, to be faithful to our task, a disciple that carries the gospel of God into and against the kingdoms of our culture today, we have to expect that we will attract opposition. And I recognize that many of you know this firsthand. I don't need to convince you of this truth. But Mark wants to remind us of that reality. He wants to remind us of that reality, that we represent a different king than the rulers of this age. And he wants to encourage us that as we think about our commissioning, and we think about the opposition that we are sure to encounter, now is the time to realize that we're out of our depth. Now is the time to call the plumber. Now is the time to look at the ground and say, I don't have enough tools for this commission. Now is the time to call in the expert, the one who, whose commission this is, the one who has sent us, the one who will eventually win. Now is the time to realize this is not a do-it-yourself project, but we need the Lord to help us. So we... We finish our statement this morning. The disciples' commission from Jesus, which we share, that which attracts opposition from the world, which we also feel, is enabled and empowered by God's provision. We need God's help, and he supplies it for us. And I want to point out three things in this passage that he provides for us that we must learn to lean on as disciples of Jesus and as a church family. Now, there are many more than this in Scripture, obviously, but there's three in this passage I just want to highlight for us. The first of which is that God provides the reinforcements we need, the help, the backup. In verse 7 of our text, in Mark 6, the author tells us that that Jesus sent them out in pairs. Did you notice that? He sent them out in pairs. He didn't send them out solo. They weren't Rambo disciples going out into the world. He sent them out in pairs. And this is very consistent with the, the Jewish custom of the day. And, and Old Testament and New Testament passages, they all speak to this. For example, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, it says this. 
One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime. One's not enough. It goes on. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. In other words, someone comes up all by themselves and they say, I want to accuse someone of something. You say, where's your backup? We need some corroborating evidence. We need someone to back up your story. Oh, there's two of you now? Okay, now we can sit down and hear the accusation. Now we can take it seriously. But with one person, no thanks. And here's Jesus sending the disciples out with a truth claim. Right? The, the kingdom is coming. The gospel of God. And he sends them out in pairs so that people can say, Oh, there's just one of you? I'm not interested. Oh, never mind, there's two. Okay, well, we can hear what you have to say then. We can take it a little bit more seriously. And so the backup, the reinforcements that God provides, it, it adds increased believability. It validates the claim that they were carrying to a certain extent. But that's not all it does. It also made them more effective in their commission. We learn in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, that two are better than one, because they have a good return on their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls, when there is not another to lift him up. When we jump to verse 30 of our passage in Mark 6, this morning, we find the twelve coming back together, this reuniting. Right? This reuniting after their, their maiden voyage in ministry. And it says in verse 30, the apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. I would love to have been a fly on a rock around that conversation. Can you imagine that? Their eyes wide. They can't believe what they just experienced. Hey, Jesus, i got to tell you i got to tell you, I, I, I laid my hands on this guy, and he had never walked before, and then he stood up and started dancing. And the other guy says, me too! I can't believe that! I, you, you as well? And then the, the demons, they were listening to us. Can you and they're just pooling the resources, the excitement, the encouragement of these disciples. And Jesus is sitting there saying, my blessed twelve, it's incredible. And so this companionship that comes together with these reinforcements, the encouragement that they experience, I would have loved to experience that. And we have that today. We have that with believers. We have that in the church. We've been provided with those reinforcements as well. Reinforcements that give us that camaraderie, that safety, and that believability. It's with God's people that we can commiserate. That we can heal. That we can process. That we can learn. That we can struggle with. That we can celebrate. That we can vent to. So with other believers that we can find support and encouragement, rebuke and wisdom. You don't know all of my story, but God used a local body of believers, an imperfect body, to bring me back to himself many, many years ago. Where they just took me in, spoke truth into my life, rebuked me where necessary, encouraged me, taught me how to serve pointed me to the word of God, and the Lord used that local body just like this in my life. And I know for many of you that's the same truth. You've experienced that as well. How God uses his reinforcements to to bolster up his body. We need one another. We need other believers. This is not a solo mission. This is not a do-it-yourself project that we're on. We need the the, the reinforcements that God has provided for us. Second, The second provision that God provides, as highlighted in this text, is that he provides the resources that we need. Not only the reinforcements, but the the resources that we need. In verses 8 and 9, the twelve are sent out with almost nothing. Did you notice that? They're sent out with almost nothing. And Jesus instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey. 
except a mere staff. Wear sandals. Don't even put on two tunics, he said. We wonder why on earth would he send them out empty-handed on this, this maiden voyage, this significant ministry moment in their lives? Why would he do that? Well, this, this seemingly bizarre command for minimalistic ministry is almost certainly a reference uh, to the Exodus generation. It's a point back in time to a, to a time that they would have known well, and it's kind of slipped our memory as New Testament believers uh, a couple millennia later, but they would have certainly got this. That in the Exodus, they were oftentimes commanded to go empty-handed. In fact, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, the same dress code can actually be found. Describing the Passover, God speaking to his people says, Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, with one tunic, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. The Passover was to communicate, would be an opportunity for the people of God to declare two things that are kind of two sides of the same coin. One, we've got nothing. We are helpless. We need help. And the other side of the coin is God can provide everything. That was the declaration in the Passover. And here Jesus is, is sending out the twelve, forcing them to totally depend on God. You have nothing in your hand. You've got nothing with you. You have nothing, and you are going to have to, uh, you're going to have to provide, you're going to have to rest in God to provide everything for you. He's going to have to provide the lodging. He's going to have to provide the food, just as he provided the message that you're wielding and the authority with which you wield it. It's going to be him. If anything's going to happen, it's going to be because, it's going to be because God stepped in. And the same is true with us today, and we can extrapolate from Exodus to the Twelve to us today. If we are going to do anything in this world, if we're going to pursue Christ-likeness, if we are going to invite people onto this journey, it's going to be when we recognize that we're empty-handed and that God has to work through us. Jesus makes it pretty clear in the upper room. He says, apart from me, you can do a few things. Oh, no, that's not. My scripture memory is rusty. Apart from me, you can do a couple of things. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. And he goes on in that same verse to say, and yet, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. Two sides of the same coin. You can do nothing apart from me and yet I can provide everything you need. So when we seek to grow in maturity on our own strength, which is what our calling is to be, right? And our destination is to be like Christ. When we seek to grow in maturity on our own strength, we actually undercut the true means by which we grow, which is his power. When we attempt to influence the the people around us in the power of the flesh, even with good intentions, we are essentially trying to steal God's glory. And I'll be very candid with you this morning. This is a a weekly struggle for me. This is a weekly struggle. As I stand up here to what I pray is offer a good meal to the people of God. If I ever do this, listen, I like to study. I like to read. I like to figure out what God's doing. I like to understand the way he works. But if I ever come up on this platform into this pulpit or anyone else does without soaking this process in prayer and saying, Lord, I can do nothing in the hearts of people without your help. You've got to make my heart ready to hear your word. You've got to shape me to your will. You've got to make their hearts ready to hear it. You have to be in this moment. Lord, your spirit needs to be working. Unless I or any other preacher soaks it in prayer, declaring our dependence on God and, and his power working through us, then it is all for naught. And that is the same with all of our ministries. And yes, we all have ministries, don't we? We all have areas where we are going out into the world where God has given us a circle of influence that he wants us to be salt and light in. 
And if we go into those ministries not aware of the fact that we can do nothing apart from him, we're helpless. It's his resources. It's him working through us. And so everything we do, we want to say, Lord, it's your spirit working in me. Fill me with your spirit. May I walk by your spirit so I can be a blessing to others. Father, connect me to your word because it's through your word that is the power of God unto salvation. It's all him working through us. And so we need to understand in a, in a do-it-yourself culture, we just need to remind ourselves, hang on a second, this is not a do-it-yourself project. God is working in and through us as a church body to affect Oakville for his glory. And that's a great thing. We just need to remind ourselves, he sends the reinforcements, he sends the resources. Third, and finally, God provides not only the reinforcements and the resources, but he provides the rest that we need. He provides the rest we need. I love this scene that closes out our passage this morning in verse 31. It's been busy for these disciples. Uncharted waters for them. Busy ministry, healing and casting out demons. And on top of that, there are many people coming and going, and they they don't even have time to eat. They're exhausted. They're at the end of themselves. I love this compassionate picture of our Savior. And Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and, and rest for a while. Verse 32, And they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. You know, the commission that they've been given, the commission that we share, to pursue holiness and to invite other people onto this journey of discipleship, it is a a tiring, fatigue-inducing commission, is it not? I don't know about you, but I get tired of wrestling with sin. It's frustrating. It's wearying. I feel like it beats me down at times. It's tiring to to love unbelievers so much that we want to give them the gospel, the reason for the hope that we have. But loving them that much means that it hurts that much. It's heartbreaking when they reject it. And so it's a roller coaster ride. It's a hard thing, this commission that we've been given. It's a hard, hard thing. We need rest. One of the good things about being faced with our finiteness and our, our limits as people is that it can be a springboard to, rep, to, uh, to remember God's lack of limits and his infiniteness and how great our God is. But it, it certainly reminds us that we are weak, that we need his help, that we need his rest, just like the disciples did. They needed to be taken away to refuel. And that's what Jesus offers, exactly what he offers. In Matthew chapter 11, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I understand that in the context of Matthew 11, that's talking about salvation. Yet, the method of our salvation is also the method of our sanctification. We're called by grace through faith to justification, to salvation, and we will walk by grace through faith. And so if we are called to rest in Christ, in our justification, in our salvation, then we can continue to go back to him as believers as we journey along this path of discipleship, saying, Lord, I need rest, because this is wearying. This is a heavy commission that you've given me, not to mention all the opposition that I'm facing. I need you to give me rest. Hebrews 12, it likens the Christian life and the the commission we're given to a race. You're familiar with this. To throw off all the things that ensnare us and and that trip us up and run with endurance the race set before us. And it's a marathon, right? It's an endurance event. I don't know if you've ever watched um, ultra marathons or Ironman triathlons or the other these crazy endurance things that I can't quite comprehend. 
But if you ever watch them, if you see on TV the participants, the athletes, the runners, uh, as they compete, you'll notice that they refuel along the way. There's water stations, or at times they, they actually carry things on their person. Granola bars and gels and goos and all these things. Why? Because they know that the calorie expenditure needed to finish this race is more than they have in themselves. And you've seen maybe videos of people hitting that wall when they run out of calories trying to complete one of these events and they got all chicken-legged and they, their bodies just give up. They can't do it anymore. And so they ingest more calories in order to complete the race. That is the same with our life. We do not have it in us to complete this race faithfully. We must refuel along the way. We must go to him for rest and replenishment. We have to go to Jesus for rest. And that is not, that is not a declaration of our, no, I take that back. It is a declaration of our weakness, of our inability. And that's okay, because he is able. And he's the one providing us with the resources and the rest and the reinforcements. And that's a good thing for us to learn as individual believers and, and for, for us as a church, living in a do-it-yourself culture to realize we can't do this ourselves. We need to go to him for rest. We need that. If we remember Mark 3 again, where we went back to early in our time together, it says that the 12 were called by Jesus so that they, would, they could be with him and that he could send them out. Notice the order. So they could be with him so he could send them out. And then in chapter 6, our passage today, we see them with him, being sent out, coming back with him so they could be sent out again. There's a pattern here. And for us, it's the same. We need to come to him, come to Jesus to be refueled, to be sent out, to carry out this commission effectively. And we do so like this morning when we gather together as a church to worship him shoulder to shoulder with the redeemed, to submit to the word of God together. We do so when we worship as families together, when we pray together as families. We do so in our own times. These are, these are water stations along the way, our race that he's charted out before us. May God rip the pride out of us that stops us from stopping at those stations. I can do this myself, Lord. I don't need the replant. No, we do. That's a good thing to admit. To admit that I am finite. He's not. He's infinite. I can go to him as many times as I want. I will never drain him. So our call to grow in Christ-likeness and to invite others to that same journey is not a do-it-yourself project. We need the reinforcements, we need the resources, and we need the rest that only God can provide. And so to sum up this morning in... in a pithy and, and hopefully memorable way. You and I, as individual disciples of Jesus, and together as a church family, we must engage God's mission, leaning on his provision. It's the only way to do it. We've got to engage that mission. I know we're excited to engage the mission. I see that weekly here. I, I know that. We're excited to engage it. We just need to remind ourselves that this is not something we can do in our own power. This is something we have to rely on the power of God and his resources to accomplish. And that might mean asking God, okay, God, show me where there are still bastions of pride in my life, where I'm still clinging to self-righteousness, where I'm still clinging to that do-it-yourself mentality. Am I trying to, am I trying to coerce my children or my grandchildren into salvation? Or am I just presenting the gospel to them and praying like crazy for them? Am I trying to, to evangelize with some guilt tactics? Am I trying to trick people into the kingdom? Lord, show it to me. You know, show me. I, I want to know if there are places where I'm not relying on you. And then when God shows it to us and trusts that he will, when he does do that, we repent of it. We say, Lord, I am sorry. 
I want to rely on you better. I want to, to relinquish all sort of self-righteousness and do-it-yourself mentality. I want to get rid of it because I want to be successful. I want to be successful for your glory in the commission you've given me in spite of the opposition. That's what I want. And I know that's what we want. So this is a reminder from Mark through me to us this morning that we are not in a do-it-yourself project here. We are in a project that God has given us and he has equipped us to accomplish for his glory and his glory alone. Let's pray for those things together as we close.